Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today we're looking at Ephesians chapter 3, at how Paul talks about the mystery of God, and explains what that is, and then also talks about how the church is the very place that reveals God's wisdom to the principalities and powers of this world. So we're going to be looking at the purpose of the church and how the church reveals the wisdom of God, which is kind of the title of this message. We've got a few things coming up here at North Shore Vineyard, a work day uh, on Saturday. We've got Relate coming up next week. You can sign up at eventbrite.com and all kinds of other things. So check us out on our Facebook page or our website. Thanks for listening. Ephesians 3, 1 through 12. This is on the front of your bulletin. It says, This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Jesus, for Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you have already heard of my commission of God's grace that was given to me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote about, as I wrote above in a few words a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I've become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety may now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that is carried out, that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. And that's one sentence from Paul, by the way. (laughs) I seemed to get in trouble when I was a kid when I wrote sentences that long. But Paul gets away with it quite often. (laughs) The Apostle Paul starts off writing by saying that he is part of his vocation. Part of what he's called to do is to proclaim a mystery. How many of y'all like mysteries? I'm, I'm into mysteries, whether it's a true crime mystery or a sci-fi mystery or some movie that has an unexpected plot twist. Those are my favorite kind of stories. Don't just give me a story where everything's predictable and acts, you know, everything works out. I want something that is going to overthrow all my conceptions of what has been going on up to that point. And, and all of a sudden I'm going to have to see the story in a whole new light. And this is kind of what Paul's getting at with the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, we see that, that, that something has been hidden that now changes the whole thing. And so Paul says that's part of his, his call. That's why he's actually a prisoner. Paul starts this off by saying, 
This is the reason I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Paul is not speaking metaphorically here. He's not, you know, just using an analogy. He's an actual prisoner. He's writing this from death row in a Roman prison. He could die it in any day. And he says, this is the reason I'm a prisoner. This is why I, I go on fighting and am willing to even be locked up for the sake of proclaiming this mystery. It's a mystery that has been hidden. What is that mystery? That the Gentiles have now been uh, brought into what God was doing with the Jewish people. Now, this mystery has been hidden. And to somebody like Paul, who was a Pharisee, who was zealous for the, the Old Testament law, zealous to the point of where he would actually consent to other people being killed or, or using violence to persecute other people who didn't believe the way he did, this is very mysterious. Because Paul, like the other Pharisees of the first century, would not have seen this plot twist coming. (laughs) Paul was all about being faithful to God, but it was very much about a, a very tribalistic kind of view of what God was doing. And now Paul bumps into Jesus, and and everything, everything has changed. But it is not that that this mystery has been completely hidden. If we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, I'm I'm actually working on a a series on the book of Genesis that I I think we're going to do here in a few weeks, and I'm kind of excited about that. But we're going to be looking a lot at Father Abraham. Uh, Father Abraham has many sons and daughters. And I won't make you sing that this morning. Um, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you're already singing it in your head right now. Let's all praise the Lord. Um, but if we go all the way back to the calling of Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham. He says, Abraham, I want you to leave everything that you know and follow after me. And as you do, I'm going to bless you. Abraham was an old guy when when God called him. He was way past like the, the age of you know, where people normally have kids. And God says, I'm going to bless you, not only with one heir to carry on your name, but your descendants. I'm going to make a people out of your descendants. Your descendants are going to end up being uh, innumerable, like the stars in the heaven, like the sands on the seashore. I'm going to bless you so that all the nations of the world will be blessed through what I'm doing in you. That's the Abrahamic problem. That's the oldest covenant that we find uh, in Scripture you know, that God makes specifically with a person. And so God makes this covenant. So all the way back in the very beginning, it was, yes, God was going to, to use Abraham's descendants. Uh, God have a, a special covenant with them. But it was always about the whole world becoming blessed through what God was doing through Abraham and his descendants. It was never meant to be just about a people group. In fact, you, you can find this language in, in Exodus and in Leviticus where God will make statements to the Jewish people like, like this, that, you know, you are a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You know, the Jewish people were called actually to be a nation of priests, that they would reveal to the rest of the world what, what being in relationship with God was like. That was part of their calling and their vocation. And this is why in, in the New Testament when Jesus is... Um, teaching, he often has very harsh criticism for the Pharisees. You know, he's like, you guys, you know, you, you, you load people down with rules. 
The Pharisees came up with some 200 or so extra rules to throw on the 400 plus rules of the old covenant. Like they, that was their whole thing. It's just like, we, we need more rules. Maybe if we get more rules, then God's going to show up and do what they want. But they, rather than helping people come into faith with God, the Pharisees had, had made it harder for people to know God. They'd actually come up with more uh, hoops for people to jump through. And so Jesus is, is very critical of them. In fact, when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, the salt of the earth. He was, he was actually speaking to, you know, in the, in the cultural context, Jerusalem was actually a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And part of the call of Jerusalem was that, you know, Jerusalem was at the, the crossroads of the ancient world there. So if you were, uh, you know, coming from the Mediterranean down to Africa or from Africa to Near East, you, you would go through Jerusalem. It was a city of commerce and the crossroads of the ancient world. And, and God's plan was that, that Jerusalem in particular would be a place where people would be coming through the city to, to sell their goods or do business and that they would encounter God's presence there in the temple and in God's people. And yet Jesus says, instead of doing that, you've hidden your light. Your, your salt has lost its flavor. You're not revealing who God is. You're actually obscuring who God is. And so the mystery that has now been revealed to Paul by a personal encounter with Jesus Christ is that this thing was always about God reaching everybody, that the Gentiles have been brought into what God was doing, that we've been made heirs along with the Jewish people of God's promises, that God's rescue for the world now includes us. And that's good news. But for most of us, when we read it, we're like, oh, hum, you know. Uh, if you actually look at Paul's writings, like the book of Galatians, for instance, that's the main issue Paul's dealing with. Paul says these, these, these crazy statements like, in Christ Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. Paul is saying that, that because of this new thing that God has done, all the things that people tend to divide over in this world are made secondary. In Christ, Christ becomes the main identifier for our lives. And so it doesn't matter where you grew up or what tribe you're in or what social class. In the church, things ought to be different. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 10, he says, God's intent was that now... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the ruler, rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. Not only is Paul proclaiming a mystery, but he's saying that the church is the very place that reveals what God is doing. The very place that reveals God's wisdom. But I would say that that, that this only happens if we are living into what Paul is talking about here. I think when I look around at the United States right now, people are leaving the church uh, faster than at any point in, in, in the United States history. People are leaving the church in record numbers. And I think that that's partly due to the fact that the church, rather than revealing God and revealing the good news... <laughs> The church has, has just become so involved in consumerism, in dividing up the world, 
in fighting over uh, you know, little kingdoms and empires, that, that it's just put a bad taste in people's mouth. People are like, why, why would I want to add this to my life? I can get this in the regular old world out there. But when we look at how the church actually came into being, we see that the church, when it is unleashed upon the stage in Acts chapter 2, we see it's a very different thing going on. In Acts chapter 2, I'm not going to read this all because, uh, you know, I spent probably the first eight or ten years of, of my Christian journey in very charismatic and Pentecostal circles. So I can quote Acts 2 verbatim. So, uh, but in, in, in more charismatic circles, oftentimes when it comes to the second chapter of Acts, the emphasis often is looking at the, the, the power signs of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, prophecy, things like that. Uh, which was pretty much the only grid I'd ever looked at the second chapter of Acts through up until a few years ago. And I, all of a sudden I realized, like, that's powerful, what the Holy Spirit was doing in power miracles that day. But equally, if not even more powerful, is the explanation behind it and what we see that reality look like after the Holy Spirit comes. So if you're unfamiliar with Acts chapter 2, basically... Um, if we go back to the end of, of, of the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, I'm leaving you guys, but it's good that I'm going because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to be the comforter, the one who comforts you. The Holy Spirit is going to be the one who leads you into truth and reminds you of the things that I've told you. The Holy Spirit is going to give you boldness so that when you get brought in front of rulers because, you know, to be persecuted of your faith, you don't have to worry about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit's going to give you the words to say. I've had that experience happen in my life. Sometimes I'm like terrified. God, I don't know. I'm in over my head. Help me say something. And God gives me words to say in the moment. But, but Jesus tells them, your, your relationship with God is going to go from external. I mean, as good as it was to have, you know, I, I wish that I would have got to walk around the actual Jesus <laughs> in his earthly ministry. But as awesome as that is, Jesus says it's going to go, it's going to get even better. Because instead of having this external relationship, you're going to be indwelt by the very Spirit of God. So he's like, I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So the disciples, Jesus ascends back to heaven. The disciples go and they wait in, G in, in Jerusalem. And they're waiting for a couple of weeks. And finally, on the day of Pentecost, which was a, a festival that, that people from all over the Mediterranean world would be attending there in Jerusalem. So there's people all over the streets. Finally, on the day of Pentecost... These disciples who are gathered in this upper room for prayer and just waiting on God, they begin to hear the roar of like a hurricane force wind. That kind of sounded like static. But they, they, they wait and they hear this, this wind roaring and then they begin looking at one another and everybody's head looks like it's on fire. Crazy stuff. But to make matters even more crazier, they start spilling out into the streets. And these simple Galilean fishermen all of a sudden are speaking other languages that they didn't learn. They didn't go to Spanish class when they were in high school. They are speaking fluently in other languages, proclaiming the wonders of God in languages that they don't know. And people from all over the world that are gathered there begin hearing the wonders of God proclaimed in their own language. 
But this is the part that I, I want to focus in on today. When, when Peter... Um, when Peter gets up to explain what's going on, I mean, how do you explain this? A, a roaring wind, people's heads on fire, people <laughs> um, speaking in unknown languages. When Peter gets up to explain what's going on, it's very interesting how he chooses to do this. Because with all this crazy stuff going on, there's a lot of people that think that these guys have just been hitting the sauce a little early in the morning. I mean, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Some people are like, these guys are just drunk. They're out of their mind. And Peter gets up and says... We're not drunk. We haven't been hitting the whiskey at 9 o'clock in the morning. But rather, this is actually what was prophesied by Joel in the Old Testament a few centuries earlier. And Joel said this, In in the last days, says God, I shall pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even... On your servants, another word for servants in the New Testament, that, that's kind of a sterile or, or, or a light translation. It's slaves. Even on your slaves, both men and women, I'm going to pour out of my spirit. Now, that doesn't sound terribly revolutionary to us because here we are 2,000 years later, the beneficiaries of everything that happened in the New Testament. I mean, do you realize Western civilization is... It, the, the cornerstone of it is the Judeo-Christian roots. I mean, there's been a lot of bad stuff that's happened with church, but a lot of good stuff in Western civilization has come from, from just Judeo-Christian beliefs, and we are the beneficiaries of it. So it doesn't seem radical to us. But back then, this was intensely radical. Because up to that point in history, the only people who could get in on what God was doing were guys and not just guys you had to be jewish and not just jewish you had to be of the 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 levite tribe of the jewish people the levites of the 12 tribes they were the one tribe that was in charge of ministering to god in the temple so it was the priestly caste but even among the levites there'd be a a very small select group of people that 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 once a year one one of them would be chosen to be the high priest to go into the holy of holies so there was one person a year they could go into God's presence, and they would tie bells to him because it was a scary thing to get in God's manifest presence. You might die if you did it wrong, and they'd have to pull you out if they heard the bell stop ringing. But up until this point, the only people who could get in on what God was doing in a manifest way, get around God's presence, were just a handful of guys on planet Earth. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit's being poured out, Peter says, this is no longer that. (laughs) This is no longer just for a select group of people. God is blowing this thing up. I think that's why when Jesus was crucified, on the day Jesus dies on the cross, we see that the, the, the veil in the temple is torn in two. God is breaking out of the Holy of Holies. No longer is this thing going to be just for a select group of people. God is opening this thing up. And that's pretty radical. But what's even more radical is how we actually see this lived out. Because if you get to the end of the first chapter of Acts, it says that they continued daily breaking bread. They continued daily listening to the apostles' teachings. 
And they started taking care of one another. It says there was no person with needs among them because they just started taking care of one another. They sold their possessions and took care of one another as, as, as they saw needs in their community. And it's in this way that the church is prophetic. You know, going back to my, my early years as a Christian, I was, as I said, I was in very charismatic things. And I, this one church I was a part of, they would actually have prophets of there on, on every Monday night. And so I, you know, over a few years, like I got to hear like some of the uh, top people that, that were considered prophets in the United States. And, but much of the time, when it comes to, to, to what is labeled the prophetic in, in that tradition, I, I just found that a lot of people just wanted you to kind of tell them what their future was. It wasn't, you know, like, like, like show me what's, what's going to happen in my future, you know, show me. Uh, and, and certainly that can be a part of the prophetic. But I, I, think, I feel like sometimes it's, it's not much different from what you see at Jackson Square with psychics, that people, you know, just tell me, tell me what good things are going to happen in my life or bad things. What I see, though, is truly prophetic, though. You can see it in the ministry of Jesus. Because really what we see even happening on the day of Pentecost, it's, it's not much different from what we see with Jesus. You, you realize that every time Jesus sat down and broke bread with sinners, Jesus was prophesying to the powers that be what God's like. Every time Jesus touched a leper or an unclean person, or forgave the sins of a prostitute, Jesus is announcing that God is with us, that this isn't the same old deal. Jesus was prophesying to the powers that be. He was speaking truth to the ones in charge that there is a new day coming. And I think the greatest days in the church's history, you know, for all the, the Christians have done some horrible things, some atrocious things throughout the last 2,000 years. But when I look at the greatest days in church history, I see the church operating in this spirit because the church begins revealing the wisdom of God to the world. I see this back when, you know, in ancient times there was a, 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 a a plague in Alexandria in Egypt. And guess what? It was the Christians who stayed in the city when everybody was fleeing the city. They stayed in the city to take care of the people that were suffering from the plague. It was Christians who were on the forefront of freeing slaves in this country. It's been Christians who've been on the forefront of so many things when they are living what Paul is talking about here. You know, last weekend... I gave everybody a little exercise to do uh, in, in reflecting over this past year, looking for moments of consolation and desolation, you know, and uh, trying to, to figure out the good things that we can build on going into the, into the future. But that exercise that I led everybody through last weekend, I did this same exercise looking at this church uh, when I did a little study retreat back at the end of November. I did the, the same kind of exercise, just kind of thinking back over this last, uh, over 2017, looking at the church. And I got to tell you, there's plenty of places in this church where, where we can grow and improve, uh, and, and, and we're, we're, we're always trying to grow and improve. But I got to tell you, when I look at the ways that this community is growing in relationship with one another and with God, 
I see some amazing things on the fundamentals. When I look back at this last year, I've seen a lot of people who've been going through very difficult times, and I've seen people in this church sacrificially give to help other people of their, their, their money, their resources. I've seen people who will just go sit with a person just to be with them during a time of grief. Even when we've done outreaches like the outreach we did back in September where we went a few blocks down to a, a predominantly black area of town, um, and all we were doing was to just show up out there and cook barbecue and play music, not to get people to come to this church, but to just make some friendships and break bread with people in a world that is intensely divided along even racial lines now. That may have looked like foolishness to people. <laughs> like, these people aren't going to come to your church. You're not even trying to get them to your church. What, what, what are you, what, what's your end game here? Our end game is we are about revealing what God is like, and we feel like this is what God's like. God doesn't respect the walls that we tend to erect in this country between Republican and Democrat and black and white and rich and poor, male and female. God doesn't respect those things. And we as the church are not about respecting those walls, but, but announcing the wonderful News that in Jesus Christ, we have been brought near to God. And to the extent that we live that out with one another in our relationships, we reveal what God is like to the world. And this is why the church is important. (laughs) You know, I I shared a few, a couple of months ago, if you weren't here for our Tom Petty liturgy, um, we put it online. Um, but it was probably one of the only services I've done in this church since we started eight years ago that was pretty unscripted as far as my message. I mean, normally I at least have some notes like this. And I got up that Sunday morning, and I, I shared some, some of my own struggles. And I, I share with folks that, you know, the last three years have been a very difficult time for me personally just in wrestling through my own faith and wrestling through the Bible and wrestling through what it means to be a pastor and, and, and the church and all that. And it got me into some pretty dark places because sometimes, you know, when you ask questions and you chase things down, it, it's going to get darker before it gets bright. <laughs> and when I came back from our vacation this summer, uh, I told Dina, I was like, I don't know if I have another year, year left of being a pastor because I was just, I just was I mean, I was really depressed, and it just kept coming to me, and I just didn't know what to do. But you know how God began to to reach me? When I finally got to the point, and and, and I had to be honest with Dina. I was like, okay, well, if if I'm not a pastor anymore, do we go to church? (laughs) Do we go to North Shore Vineyard, or do we shut it down, or whatever, you know? And as I began thinking through what my life would be like without North Shore Vineyard, just as a member, not as a pastor, but just as a member, because I'm a member of this thing too, and I, I, I'm a part of this community. <laughs> That's when I really began to see how much God has touched my life by just the relationships in this church. That's when I began to just see 
how North Shore Vineyard, we're, we're a, a very small, insignificant church. We don't have a big building. We don't have a lot of money. <laughs> we do have something special going on here. And I really began to recognize how that's impacted my life, how I've benefited. And I, and I was like, you know, I haven't had the level of authentic, authentic relationships with people that I've had since I've been in this church. I haven't experienced this level of community, this level of generosity in relationships anywhere else in my life. And it was ironic to me, the, the moment that, that I'm, I'm kind of in the place of, of, of thinking, well, you know, I may have to leave this thing. It was actually in thinking about this thing, kind of detaching me as a pastor, just to see it as the, the community as it is, that, that actually was God's way of reaching me. And I finally got to a place, and I shared this back in, in September. Um, I finally got, God was really reaching to me through different things like this over a few months over the summer. And, and finally, by, by September, I felt like I finally actually crossed, uh, turned the corner. And I finally got to a place of like, you know, even though I don't have all my questions answered, <laughs> If I just devote the rest of my life to helping people lead lives of compassion and mercy and truth and authenticity to follow Jesus, if, if that's all I do with the rest of my life, I'm okay with doing that. That's not a, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Because <laughs> when I look around at our world and how divided our world is, when I look at the way people talk to one another on, on social media, and devalue one another. When I look at how quickly even members of one's own family will divide over something as silly as politics and just cut each other off and disown one another, thinking our world needs a place like this more than ever (laughs) to demonstrate you don't have to divide yourself. You can be in relationship with people (laughs) beyond that. And I love looking around at this church because, you know, I, I suspect we probably got about a third Democrat, a third Republican, a third independent, anarchist, whatever. And, and I think that's a great thing. When I look around on a Sunday morning and I see people uh, from, from people who uh, are Republicans hanging out with Democrats and independents, people who are rich hanging out with poor people, that's the kingdom of God. That's, that's the mystery. That's the wisdom of God. But our problem is that we have treated the church as if it's just a consumable product or good. And we're all guilty of it. I am too. You know, one phrase I've come into contact with a whole lot in the past few years, I get the, I get the saying, but people say, we're church shopping. All right? A new person shows up, we're church shopping. Like, like, like we're looking for a new car. We're, we're looking for a new restaurant to go to, you know. We're, we're, and that's the way, honestly, that, that many people conceive of church. It's a consumable good or a product. If they've got a good children's ministry and a good youth ministry and good coffee and it's comfortable and the music's not too loud, then we're going to be a part of this thing until it's not. <laughs> and, and honestly, I think that that's the way that, that so many people treat church. That's why I try to be very honest with people when they come here. Like, I, I've tried to, like, like I'm not, you know, in, in the early days of doing this church, you know, the first couple of years, I was very insecure about, like, I wanted people to like us and stuff. So I, you know, 
I would try to be real nice to people and, you know, maybe let them think things about me, you know, that, that maybe they'd have to find out down the road and they'd become disappointed a year or two later when they, uh, but now I'm trying to be very honest with people and that like, I don't want to act like anything. I don't, I don't want you to be led to believe that this church is going to be anything other than what it is, or I'm going to be any different. I want to lower the bar on your expectations. <laughs> Because if you don't feel like this is your thing, that's fine. Go somewhere else. I mean, I'm not. But if you do, this can be a wonderful thing. But the church is not a consumable product. It's a community. It's a people. And that people is greater than what we do on a Sunday morning. It's greater than our building, thank God. (laughs) It's in our relationships with one another. And I can see why people want to treat church as a consumable product, because in a way, it's a lot easier than being in authentic community. (laughs) I think I've shared this before, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite uh, German theologians, uh, he he wrote a lot in, in... around the time that, that the Nazis were coming to power in Germany, and he was a, a, a huge critic against Nazism and really kind of led the underground church. But he wrote a, a fantastic book on community, and he, and he uh, noted in his book on community that oftentimes the people who say they want community the most are the ones who are going to destroy community the most because they like the idea of community. They like the idea of belonging and having friends and people that they can do life with but they don't like what it's actually going to cost to do it. Because here's the deal. If you treat church like it's an actual community instead of a product, then you got to show up and you got to participate. And you got to get involved in people's lives. And here's what happens when you get involved in people's lives. It's great initially, but at some point... You're going to bump heads with somebody. You're going to disagree. You're going to misunderstand one another. It's going to be hard. You're going to have conflict. And nobody likes conflict. Or if you do, that's another problem. <laughs> Some people love conflict. That, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> I think about my own marriage. You know, marriage has not been an easy thing. Me and Dina... Just we're, we're, we joke around a lot when we do this relate class, like who'd have ever thunk in our first five years of marriage that someday we would actually, you know, be talking about marriage and relationship to other people. We had very little hope that this thing was going to last more than a few more weeks. I mean, a couple of weeks after our honeymoon. I mean, it was it was going down quick, you know, had holes in the boat everywhere. And I, I just like there's there's no stinking way this can work out. But here we are, 20 years later, by the grace of God, and I have to say that as hard as it has been to be with another person in a committed relationship, as hard as it is to learn how to be honest with how you feel without destroying the other person in the process, or to not be defensive when somebody tells you something, or to to learn how to communicate with this other person, or receive criticism, or figure out how you're going to do chores, and all all the crazy things that goes into marriage. As hard as it has been, I'm a better person because of that relationship than I ever would have been if I never experienced it. And I would say that is true of the church. Now, obviously, the church, we're not asking you to uh, commit at that level. That, that might be a little cultish, you know, till death do us part. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> 
But when I look over the last eight years of doing this church, which we just, uh, today's about our eight-year anniversary. Happy anniversary, North Shore Vineyard. <laughs> when I look over these last eight years, it's not, the, the hardest things that, that we've gone through have been relational issues. It's not been whether we have enough bill to pay the, enough money to pay the rent or whether, you know, we got the sound system working. Like, all that's external. The hardest thing has been navigating relationships. And when people get upset by this and you have to walk through things together, that's difficult. And when that stuff happens, most people just want to leave church and go somewhere else and just treat church like a consumable product. But when I look back over this last year at this church, whether it's these guys who get together and celebrate recovery every Thursday night to help each other grow and experience transformation in their lives, whether it's the people that are showing up week after week to, to help with kids and children's ministry, whether it's the outreaches that we're doing to, to feed hungry people or just to go share some meals with people that, 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 that look different than us, <laughs> whether it's compassion or whether it's just what's happening organically as people are taking care and, 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 and loving on one another with their time, their resources, their very presence. What I see is the wisdom of God being revealed to the powers of our world. There is a new king in town, and this is what he's like. You can treat church like it's just something you show up in and, oh, I got something great out of that pastor's teaching today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to underline this and think about this this week. That's, that's okay. But to really enter into community with one another, to be a group of people that doesn't respect all the boundaries that, that our world makes, the way our world divides up, to, to truly live our lives in community as, as we're, we're, we're not just going it alone, that brings us into a whole different place that reveals who God is. Hebrews 10. Oh, I guess I better shut up. It's about time to... Um, Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds. Not giving up on meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. I heard this passage on so many occasions as a way to guilt people into coming to church, like, don't forsake the for, uh, assembling of the saints together. Um, I don't think this is about guilt, though. It's the importance that we need to treat this thing not as a product, but as we come together, as we make it a priority to to not live our lives alone, we experience what God truly has for us. I'm going to invite Brandon up here. He's going to lead us in communion this morning. So we will just close by coming to the Lord's table. And uh, I won't say anything else because you probably have something to say. All right. Y'all stand up with me. So as we were talking about this message and teaching team, I started thinking about the uh, importance of communion as part of a church body. And I started thinking, you know, uh, I was raised in a church tradition where you actually voted on who could be a part of your church or not. 
I don't know if y'all been in church like that, but it was it was always kind of a formality thing. You know, the preacher said, hey, if you agree by letting them be part of our body, say amen. And of course, nobody's going to you know, object. But there's technically, you could technically vote somebody to not be a part of your church community, um, which is weird because then later on, I had a pastor tell me one time, you can't vote on who's in your family or not. Um, some of you wish you could, you know. Because there's a couple, of, I have an uncle who, never mind. Um, but you can't vote on who's in your family or not. And Crispin said something in teaching team that this week that just really stoked me. He said, if you think about it, one body was broken so that this body might become one. If you really think about that, we are here, North Shore Vineyard exists because 2,000 years ago, a Middle Eastern Jewish man had a meal with 12 of his buddies. And at that meal, he said, hey, this bread, this is my body. It's broken for you. Take this and do this in remembrance of me. And it's because of that man 2,000 years ago had this meal and sacrificed himself. North Shore Vineyard exists as a community. We would not know each other if that man had not done that all those years ago. That goes the same for churches around the world who are participating today in the exact same communion that we are. We are one as a body because of the bread and the wine. We are connected through the broken body and blood of Jesus Christ. And we celebrate it today as we come. Republican, Democrat, Independent, yes. Black, white, fat, thin, smart, stupid, you know, name. Give, give yourself the edge if you want. We're all one part of a body. Brothers and sisters, in this family, in this family that would not have existed except for Jesus Christ bringing us together, being broken for us so that we might become one. So as the servers come, I'm just going to lead us in the Lord's Prayer. And you can come forward as you're ready. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Amen. Come forward.